0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Will Clemente is a finance major at East Carolina University. He has quickly become one of my favorite writers on all things Bitcoin, including deep dives on various on-chain analytics. In this conversation, we discuss macroeconomics, quantitative easing, interest rates, universal basic income. Bitcoin analytics, minor accumulation, and why sound money is inevitable. I really enjoyed this conversation with Will, and I hope you do as well. Before I get into this episode though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Remote. In 2021, every business is a global business. But how do you pay your global team and comply with international labor laws? Remote handles payroll, benefits, taxes, and compliance to help companies of all sizes pay and manage full-time and contract workers all over the world. No matter where your team lives and works, remote's global employment solutions keep your team, your finances, and your intellectual property secure. Remote never charges percentages or fees, just best-in-class global employment solutions for a low flat rate. The world's top global companies love remote. GitLab, the world's largest all-remote organization, trusts Remote to manage their global team, and so should you. Remote is funded by Index Ventures, Sequoia Capital, and a host of other top-tier investors. Learn more about Remote and their Remote for Startups program at Remote.com. Again, Remote.com. If you have a remote team, you have to be using Remote.com. Next up is BlockFi. BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include high-yield interest accounts, U.S. dollar loans against your crypto collateral, and a no-fee cryptocurrency exchange. To start earning today, you can visit blockfi.com slash pomp. Again, blockfi.com slash pomp. I'm an investor, I sit on the board, and I'm a really, really happy user. I think you will be too. BlockFi is also coming out with a new credit card where it pays you Bitcoin rewards back rather than cash back or airline miles. So if you want the Bitcoin rewards credit card, go sign up today on the wait list at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. Go sign up today for their financial products for crypto investors. Lastly, is Choice. Choice is rebuilding the way you approach retirement, which starts with making it simple to include Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in your savings. More than 20,000 Bitcoiners, myself included, have already signed up to start investing. Whether we are talking about crypto or stocks, Choice lets you trade real Bitcoin and Tesla in the same place, all without paying a dime in capital gains taxes. And if you want to hold your own keys all the way to the moon, you can do that, too. Either way, Choice is on a mission to give you full control of your retirement savings. So head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Again, that's retirewithchoice.com slash pomp and sign up for an account today. And one more thing, you know how I feel about this, but if you have a pro that manages your money, don't take any BS. Choice has tools for them too. Take back control today and visit retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. All right, let's get into this episode with Will. I hope you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do
1: not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This
0: podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Will here with me. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Super excited. For sure. So uh, you are unlike most of my guests in that you are uh, 18 years old. I think you are a finance major uh, at the uh, East Carolina University. Um, But talk us through kind of your background. where did you grow up? How did you get into uh, finance, Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. Um, I really had no interest in finance until right around March of this year when the markets tanked. And I was like, oh, maybe I can make some some easy money here because everything was cheap. Uh, I started listening to a couple different podcasts. Um, I got into kind of uh, the discount cash flow based uh, investing. And what I realized was that when you're, when you're doing those kind of uh, free cash flow based analysis on a company, you're making this as uh, assumption that there's sound money. Um, and, and that's a premise that not a lot of value investors really talk about, I think, but when I realized that it it kind of clicked to me, why growth and and momentum investing strategies have outperformed value over the last couple of years. And, you know, you, you can't fight the fed and when they're printing this much money, what you need to be doing is buying some kind of scarce asset. And that really led me to Bitcoin and, um, The fact that Bitcoin is the scarcest asset that's on the market right now.
0: Yeah. So uh, you and I don't know each other. We we didn't even know each other existed in the world. Uh, The only commonality we have is that we both grew up in the uh, Raleigh area. But I originally came over uh, or or came aware of you when uh, I saw one of the pieces that you put out very early on. Um, as you started to write more and more on the internet, and I was just really impressed, I think, with uh, the quality and the intellectual rigor that you put into uh, into the piece. So, what I want to do today uh, is I'm going to throw out the titles of a number of the different pieces that you've written uh, over the last few months, and I want you basically just to give us a summary a summary of what is the piece about, and kind of what are the takeaways for people who don't have time to go read all of them. Um, and then we'll finish up with uh, with the latest article that you wrote. That you wrote. Does that sound good? Awesome. All right. Awesome. So uh, let's just start with the first one that I saw, uh, which is why is Bitcoin important? I think there's a lot of people who think it's important, but like what exactly is your thought process as to why Bitcoin is important?
1: Sure. So the the first thing to really note is that uh, the macro backdrop that has kind of uh, taken place over the last, you know, and I guess you could say since 2008 with uh, quantitative easing, uh, liquidity being inserted through the fixed income market, um, and interest rates being driven to, to pretty much zero. And now we're starting to see a little bit of UBI. This isn't sustain, sustainable forever. And in my opinion, Bitcoin kind of is, is the solution to that problem. And so when you think through it being the solution,
0: why exactly is it the solution?
1: Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin, you know, there's only 21 million that will ever, will ever exist every four years that uh, the rate of new flow coming onto the market is cut in half. And so there's nothing really out there that, that is like that. You know, when, when we think about gold, um, if gold's price goes up, the producers will just step into the market and, and, and start producing more of it. They'll find new ways to extract it, build, make new technologies. You know, if the monetary incentive through the price going up is there, they'll find new ways to produce more, more gold, and that will uh, drive the, the price of gold back to its mean. And, and so for Bitcoin, the idea that there's this fixed supply is really just kind of a revolutionary idea in, in financial markets that there'll, there's finally a constant. Um, in, in other disciplines, even like, uh, for example, physics, you have the constant of the speed of light. And we don't have any kind of constant like that in finance. And having some kind of hard supply cap and programmatic um, monetary policy is something that really uh, brought my attention to Bitcoin. So you also write a, uh, you
0: have written a piece about why this Bitcoin cycle is differently. You compared a lot of what's going on right now to past market cycles, both the bull and bear markets. So explain why you think this uh, cycle specifically is different.
1: Yeah, sure. So when you look at the early days of Bitcoin, it was really kind of um, driven by cypherpunks and people that were savvy with uh, cryptography. And then in 2013, you had Mt. and and the aftermath of the compromise of, of that exchange. And then in 2017, it was really retail-driven. And you can kind of see that on-chain where coins on exchanges was steadily going up with price throughout that time. And then in this recent cycle, what what really differentiates it for me is the fact that coins are being pulled off exchanges. And you can see that on-chain by looking at kind of this dramatic slope downwards. And I think that's driven by a couple things. The first thing is that people are just understanding more of the importance of, of cold storage and taking custody of your coins, especially institutions that are piling in huge sums of money and they're not going to play around with having this counterparty risk. Um, and the other thing as well is that miners have completely stopped selling and you can see that on chain as well. They've actually started accumulating even a uh, marathon who I think a lot of people are familiar with. They've come out publicly and said that they've started accumulating. And and the third driver, I think, of of the coins being pulled off exchanges is this concept that's uh, been made popularized by Preston Pish and Plan B. And that's this whole concept of over collateralization and and people taking advantage of uh, arbitrage spreads through um, the difference between spot price and the futures price that's trading at a premium. So, right now, I don't have it in front of me, but if you look at the futures price, it's trading at a multi-thousand dollar uh, premium to the current price. And and it's interesting because commodities traditionally trade at premiums, but it's because they have storage costs, for example, like with, with oil. But Bitcoin has no, no storage cost because it's digital. and And so to kind of just speculate, there's no way to know for sure. But it possibly is because there's regulatory uh, restrictions that are allowing certain insti- that aren't allowing certain institutions to get exposure to spot Bitcoin, and they may be doing that through the futures market. The other thing as well is that it's really easy to get leverage through through the futures market. So those are the two reasons that I think um, whether it's one or the other or a combination of the two that's driving this uh, premium in the futures price. And so people are looking to capture these arbitrage spreads on an annualized basis. On an annualized basis, they're trading at uh, like 14, 15% right now. And and when they go to capture these spreads, they have to lock up these coins because they have to borrow the coins from a lender such as BlockFi. And BlockFi requires, um, like, the loans are are collateralized with a 50% LTV, which means if I'm borrowing, $50 $50 worth of um, Bitcoin, I have to post $100 of collateral. And then BlockFi takes that $100, and then they transfer it into Bitcoin to kind of eliminate some of the counterparty risk for the person on the other end that's lending their coins out to who's borrowing them. And they turn the, turn the collateral into Bitcoin to be held in escrow until uh, the borrower is, is able to pay off the loan. And so what this is essentially doing is it's locking up more coins out of supply than would have naturally taken place through uh, the natural supply having, if you will. And I think those, those three factors between uh, people just flat out uh, understanding cold storage and having an importance on that, miners stop selling, and then that over collateralization uh, to capture those arbitrage spreads. I think those three things are really what's driving that uh, the supply that's being pulled off of exchanges.
0: For sure. And so when you think about uh, kind of Bitcoin, you've talked a lot about this idea of a Bitcoin renaissance as well. This is a third piece that you wrote. Uh, explain what you mean by that Bitcoin
1: re- renaissance. Yeah, sure. So I think sound money is really important. Um, throughout the last 10 years, we've really started to see a lot of social unrest, especially last year. And I think that's kind of indirectly related to the fact that people are getting behind um, via the inflationary monetary policy that's going on. And they don't understand why you know, they're fed up with the system. They know something's wrong, but they don't know exactly what it is. Uh, a lot of people point fingers at capitalism. But in my opinion, what it really is, is the inflationary monetary policy and, and the amount of money printing that the Fed's doing. Right. Um, if you don't own an asset, then you can't get ahead in the current environment. If you're holding just money and savings over time, you're getting destroyed through through the money that the government's just printing especially throughout the last 12 months when they've printed trillions and trillions of dollars. And so I think when you introduce a, a sound money, particularly uh, one that's deflationary like Bitcoin, you re-incentivize saving and you allow people to be able to get ahead again. And so that that's what I really meant by saying that uh, Bitcoin would kind of introduce this new renaissance, is that in the, current, in the current environment, there's a lot of people that are just getting destroyed and they're behind. And they're, if you think about it, they're running on this hamster wheel and everything, the world is expanding around them and it's becoming more and more out of reach because everything around them is becoming more expensive. And under a Bitcoin standard, people who own Bitcoin and just hold Bitcoin, it's the complete opposite. Over the past 10 years, everything's become a lot cheaper for people that hold Bitcoin.
0: So when you think through uh, the sound money, it sounds like you and I agree that uh, that sound money is going to be crucial for the future. It is that constant you talked about uh, in financial markets where there haven't been constants in the past. Uh, but you've also written about this idea of a Bitcoin black hole effect. Uh, and this to me is like one of the most fascinating concepts uh, in the entire market and one that is heavily misunderstood. So talk through what exactly is the black hole effect and then how does that apply to Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's a couple different things that I kind of put together in that piece. The, the first one was just obviously what, what we had just talked about, the global macro backdrop of, of money printing and infinite QE. And now we're seeing UBI. And and the other two things are what we had mentioned about the over collateralization, which is kind of accelerating the rate of coins being pulled off exchanges. And, and the third thing I touched on in that piece was the speculative attack, which was made popular by Pierre Richard. And that idea is is basically that you're leveraging uh, a bad currency against one that, uh, against a hard sound currency. And that's something we've seen Michael Saylor with MicroStrategy do, where they've issued uh, convertible debt notes most recently at 0%, which is insane, $900 million, which was all it should be mentioned that it was oversubscribed to at 0%. And so what Michael Saylor is essentially doing is he's leveraging the, the failing currency against an, uh, an emerging hard sound money, which is Bitcoin. And so when you do that, I think that the most fascinating part to me is basically people
0: are giving you free money and you're taking it and you're converting it, right? Like, like when you're talking about leveraging it, you're literally taking a bad currency that is being devalued and you're buying a hard currency, which is purchasing power has continued to increase.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was talking to Preston the other day and he was telling me, you know, I, I think Michael Saylor could have actually issued it at a negative yield. Because at you know at the rate that that the Fed is driving down interest rates and in Europe you're seeing negative interest rates and here we're seeing negative interest rates in real terms and essentially what what people do are doing that are buying into these convertible debt notes is a, a they might not be able to get exposure to Bitcoin uh, through other ways um, through buying market price or. Uh, buying different shares like uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or something like that. So they're trying to look for an alternative way to get exposure to it. But in addition, with the interest rates going down by buying these, these uh, notes at 0%, they essentially will benefit if, if rates go negative. That's kind of what you're seeing in Europe is that people are buying negative yielding bonds because they're betting that the the yields are going to go further further negative. And so that could become really dangerous once that kind of unwinds. And so I think, in my opinion, that's why the Fed is going to have to continue to buy in through the fixed income market and keep driving these yields down because the second that they start to reverse, everything is going to unravel. So when you think about the black hole effect itself,
0: right, explain that.
1: Yes. So it's just the idea that Bitcoin kind of sucks everything in. And, you know, every four years, the supply cuts in half. And when you have these cycles, we have these kind of blow off tops. And then through the bottom, every single bottom that we've seen is further high, is higher than the, the previous one. And so what you're seeing is this growing network effect similar to anything like, you know, Facebook or anything like that. But we've never seen that with a monetary number attached to it. So I think that's why people are really taken back by, by Bitcoin's price movement. But these four year having cycles will continue and they'll persist until the year 2140. And so essentially, if you can think of it like a battering ram and it's, con- it's continuing to bang against the legacy financial system until at some point it's gonna break through. And so there's that aspect of it. And then in addition, right now, like, like I had mentioned the futures are trading to a premium to the current spot price. And so if the market starts to identify the yields that you can get essentially risk-free through that process of, of arbitraging those spreads, and if the market starts to recognize those uh, yields as, as the real risk-free yield, you're going to see a complete reprice of assets. You know, um, Particularly stocks, they're all priced based off of risk-free yields. When you do a discount cash flow model, you use treasury yields as your discount rate and right now, that discount rate, you know, for the 10 years, I, I think it's right around hovering around like 1.5%. And if, if that thing, if the market starts to identify these Bitcoin yields, which are blowing out to 10 15% plus potentially, then you're going to see a stock market, for example, just as a round number, if, if they blow out to 20%, you're going to need to see P, P-E ratios go well under 5 and right now the average pe ratio of the s&p is over 34 so you're looking at a 75 to 80% correction in the stock market if that were to hold true and not only that but a pe ratio of 5 would just match this risk free rate right i'm not going to i'm not going to invest in something that is risk on that's offering the same yield as something that has no risk it would have to be substantially lower than that um, and the yield that it's offering would have to be substantially higher than that risk-free yield. So you may actually see PE ratios go even lower than than five to you know maybe two, three. If if we start to see these yields blow out to twenty plus percent. Absolutely. And one of the things that's really fascinating to me is this last
0: article that you wrote, Contango and over-collateralization, right? We're talking a lot about risk here. We're talking a lot about the financial performance of other assets. But there's things specifically within the Bitcoin market uh, that are unique um, and worth paying attention to. So explain Contango and explain the over-collateralization.
1: Yeah, sure. So as we kind of touched on earlier, the futures price is trading at a premium to spot. And so for people looking to capture those spreads, they have to borrow coins from an exchange such as BlockFi, and they have to over collateralize on that. So if they're looking to borrow $50 worth of Bitcoin, they have to put up $100 as collateral, that uh, $100 is taken by BlockFi and, and turned into Bitcoin to be held in escrow. And so what happens is, as the volatility of Bitcoin increases and the price goes up more, the spreads get even fatter and it becomes even more um, desirable for different uh, fixed income investors that are currently dealing with near uh, negative yielding uh, instruments right now. And so as these yields continue to grow, you'll see more people stepping in to capture those spreads and more coins being over collateralized. And so it's just accelerating this rate of coins being pulled off of supply. And so that's the idea of Contango, that it's kind of this self-enforcing positive feedback loop, if you will, that the more coins pulled off exchanges drives the price higher and volatility higher, which makes the spreads fatter, which makes them more attractive, more people step in, and then they, more people are over collateralizing. And it's just this feedback loop of um, of coins that just continue to be pulled off of exchanges at this crazy rate. All right. So
0: here's the big question then is as that happens, where do we go in this cycle? Is this a, a super cycle that everyone keeps talking about? And we're seeing, you know, $500,000, a 1000000 million dollars, uh, in US dollar kind of exchange value? Is it no, it's like more like a 150, 200. I don't care about the price prediction necessarily as much as just like help people understand as that supply uh, and really it's the addressable supply, right? Kind of the, the available supply continues to trend down. What happens to the price?
1: Yeah, man, that's a good question. I would hate not to own Bitcoin right now, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting to see, you know, as we had mentioned on kind of at the beginning of the conversation that we have never seen this dramatic of a slope downward in coins being held on exchanges and that the supply suffocation going on, that that's just persisting every day. I mean, every day I'm checking this, this chart and it's just continually going down more coins are being pulled off exchanges. And it's kind of, it's kind of hard to tell exactly what's driving that. Um, but, man, I, I would be terrified not to own some Bitcoin right now. Yeah, and, well, and I think part of what, uh, what people are waking up to the fact is, and I, I
0: jokingly talk about it as Bitcoiners aren't selling their Bitcoin and the institutions want it, so the price has to go up to accommodate everyone. But if you actually break down what you know, the, the joke uh, and you kind of melt that away and you say, like, what, what is the truth in that joke? It basically is the fact that 60% of coins uh, have not moved in the last, you know, call it year plus, uh, and so those are Bitcoiners who have strong hands, right? There's been hundreds of percent of appreciation. There's been a 50% drop in a single day, multiple 20, 30% corrections along the way. And Bitcoiners just aren't selling. Literally, middle fingers to Wall Street, to the institutions, to everybody, I'm not selling my Bitcoin. Then you go and you look, okay, but there's all these big institutions that are showing up, right? New York uh, Life, uh, Mass Mutual, uh, every Wall Street firm, etc. cetera. And they're showing up and they've got billions of dollars and they're saying, we want Bitcoin. And so really what you're talking about is 40% of that 18.6 million Bitcoin that are in circulation are kind of available for purchase, but even those are quickly being eaten into. People are taking those uh, offline as well, right? So you're basically talking about this, like 40% addressable supply that is decreasing. And yet at the same time that the available supply is decreasing, the demand is increasing. And so naturally, what you get is you get this like squeeze, right? It's literally a price squeeze. And when that squeeze happens, you know, again, it's scary as hell not to own any Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to to just basically go off what you were just saying, I mean, you're saying, like we, like we said, you know, supply is going down at Never seen before rates, and we're starting to see demand come in that we've never at rates we've never seen before, and money being thrown at this thing that we've never you know sizes of money that we've never seen before. When you're up, you know several hundred percent. Bitcoin has two hundred percent risk-adjusted returns annually. You you don't care about it going down twenty percent. You know when when you can see this on chain as well. If you look at coins that are held. Um, in holders from the last six months, last, last year, they kind of sold into this recent dip. They might've got freaked out and sold in. But when you look at coins that have uh, addresses that have been holding coins since you know, 2015 and, and further back, they're continuing to accumulate. They haven't sold anything. And it's this, you know, when you're up thousands and thousands of percent, you could care less about this little dip. And you understand every time that there's a dip historically throughout Bitcoin, it's always gone back up. It's always recovered. Every single all-time high that you've ever bought, Bitcoin has always come and, and gone past that.
0: To me, it just feels like uh, people who don't pay attention every day to the level of uh, detail and nuance that you and I do, uh, it's very easy to say, hey, this thing's wild. It's volatile. It goes up. It goes down. I don't know what's going on. It's a scam. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's you know, worthless. It's n- name your you know, kind of FUD of choice. And it ultimately just goes back to education, right? Is uh, they're just not educated on the topic to the level uh, of information that you and I are. So, I guess my big question is just like, where do you get your information? How do you stay educated? And then, what is your process for taking those inputs and kind of the consumption that you have and then turning it out into these fantastic articles?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, thanks a lot, first of all. But I get a lot of my information just from different podcasts in the space. Uh, Preston's podcast is excellent. Uh, Stefan Laverre, Peter McCormick, yours as well. Um, and th- there's several books as well that you can read. I think the Bitcoin Standard is is the most well known. And then just in general, you know, just being on Twitter, asking questions. Twitter is such a cool space. You can get in contact with all these people you never would have gotten uh, the chance to be able to reach out to. Just you know, slide in people's DMs, and you'd be surprised how many people are willing to respond and willing to help you out and answer questions. So I I think you know, when when you're really obsessed with something, learning really doesn't feel like learning. It just kind of feels like fun to you. And and the further you start to go into this thing, bitcoiners kind of call it the rabbit hole. But the further you go, the the faster you you begin to kind of be interested in it, and it kind of compounds on itself. The rate at which you you want to learn. I mean, if you look at Michael Saylor, he said he didn't take a, a single look at Bitcoin until right after March, after the liquidity crisis. And then he knows more than almost anybody in the space now. And he's only been in it for, for months. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty wild.
0: What, what is uh, kind of the impetus for why you enjoy writing? Is it uh, a way to learn? Is it just something you've always done? Talk to us a little bit about the writing itself.
1: Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of really brilliant writers in the space. Uh, I think the, the one that everybody's familiar with is Robert Breedlove. He's brilliant. But, you know, some of Robert's articles are, are 20, 30 minute long reads. And for people that are coming into the space and, and these kind of philosophical comparisons that Robert's making Bitcoin to, comparing Bitcoin to, it's just it, they're not good for for entry level Bitcoiners that are coming in or, or Lynn Alden, who just put out two brilliant articles yesterday. These are all kind of higher level articles and reads for people. That are kind of financially savvy or have some surface level understanding of Bitcoin. So for me, especially being younger and having people constantly asking me questions, but don't understand anything about finance, um, I, I kind of took it upon myself to kind of dumb everything down into really layman's terms and 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 explain things kind of at the service level where somebody who doesn't have any financial understanding can can uh can kind of make sense of all this stuff. The other thing as well is that when I write, it really helps me formulate my own thoughts. Uh, I would consider myself more of a slow thinker. I, I can kind of sit down and really soak everything in. And then, uh, think, you know, I sit down for like an hour and then things will come to me over time rather than uh, just thinking of things on the fly. So, so that as well, I think I, I'm much better at articulating things when I'm, when I'm writing and, and uh, taking time to kind of think my thought process out. So it's beneficial for me in that aspect as well. Doing a, a fantastic job. Before we get into the uh, rapid fire questions,
0: uh, where can people find you on Twitter or find your writing?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm on Twitter at uh, w clementi iii. I'm, I'm the third. Um, and then as well, I'm writing for Bitcoin Magazine, um, who just brought me on as an intern this summer. So I'm super excited to be there. I'll be at uh, the Bitcoin conference in June. I don't know if you're coming, but I hope I'll, I hope I'll see I'll you there. Be there. I'll be, I'll be there. Right. Awesome. And then as well, I'm writing. Uh, periodically for uh, BitRawr.com, B-I-T-R-A-W-R. They were kind of the ones that uh, originally brought me in and kind of recognized me. And uh, so I owe a great deal of uh, recognition to them for kind of giving me uh, an opportunity to begin writing. And then that kind of led the way for Bitcoin Magazine to bring me on their team as well. So, Awesome. Uh, asked
0: the same three questions to everyone before uh, you get asked me one to finish
1: up. The first is, what is the most important book you've ever read? Jeez, um, I would I would say financially, the big debt crisis. How to navigate a big the big debt crisis by uh, Ray Dalio. That book really breaks down the you know the the long and short term debt cycles, inflationary and deflationary crisis. Uh, the main things that drive those. And then, just just for general life, I would say another Ray Dalio book, uh, "Principles" by Ray Dalio. That that book is is really life changing, at least to me, and I would recommend it to anybody. Those are two uh,
0: two great uh, suggestions. Now we just got to get Ray to uh, buy some Bitcoin, but uh, I think, <laughs> he might I think be. He, man,
1: he's been awfully quiet about it. So it, I don't know. He's you getting know closer. <laughs> he's getting closer for sure. Uh, it's amazing next. when you read his book. You know. He highlights, he highlights everything extremely well, you know, Ray, Ray understands these things better than anybody, but he thinks that the wand will be the new reserve currency. So I think he's got everything down pat, except for that. And (laughs) he'll come around, he'll come around soon. I, uh,
0: I tend to think so as well. Uh, next question comes from our friends over at eight sleep. Uh, I used to sleep like five or six hours when I was in college, like you tried to party my face off and basically uh, destroy my body on a uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, but now I sleep on the eight sleep thermoregulated bed. It's freezing cold. I sleep like eight or nine hours and it literally changed my life. Uh, what's your sleep schedule and how has that changed?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, when I was at school last year, I really wasn't sleeping much. You know, I was getting maybe four or five hours a night. But now that I'm home due to COVID and and, uh, because I can't really do anything here and there's not much going on. I've been I've been getting my hours and I've been getting seven, eight hours a day. So but I have been feeling a lot better getting more sleep. So that's definitely been something that I'm going to keep in my uh, habits moving forward.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to me how uh, you can go from basically school and then you go back home, right? And every college kid in America pretty much is uh, sitting at home and just itching to get back. You got to get, uh, get back and get the college experience for sure. Yeah, man, I'm ready to go back in August. <laughs> I love it. Uh, last question is aliens. Are you a believer or a non-believer?
1: No doubt. I mean, when you just think about the, the probabilities, it just really doesn't make sense that there wouldn't be any kind of other life form, all the different combinations of elements and, and different things in, in the universe and all these different kinds of planets. I mean, there's no way that there hasn't, that hasn't, the combinations haven't come together to make another life form somewhere else in the giant universe that we have. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. All right. You could ask me one question to, uh, to wrap us wrap us up. What you got for me? What would you ask your 18 or I'm sorry, what would you say to your 18 year old self?
0: Go bigger. Just, that's it. Just go bigger. No fucking fear. And, uh, I think that, uh, at 18, you're always kind of trying to figure out how do I, uh, you know, how do I make a thousand dollars, right? How do I, uh, kind of get the next step in, uh, in the milestones? How do I get a, uh, my foot in the door or something like that? But I think that what you start to realize is, uh, uh, it's all hard, right? Whether it's you're trying to make a thousand dollars or a million dollars, if you're trying to, uh, you know, buy 10 Bitcoin or hundred Bitcoin or, you know, point one of a Bitcoin, uh, if you're trying to uh, get a internship or get a full-time job, like it's, it's just all hard. And so just set your sights much, much higher and uh, and, and kind of dream bigger. And I think that when you do that, um, you're going to put the same effort into it, but you just get a bigger reward if you're successful.
1: Keep that in mind moving forward,
0: man. Thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, you're doing a fantastic job. Keep it up. I uh, really want to make sure that people kind of understood uh, you know, your viewpoint and uh, highly suggest to everyone to uh, to go read every time you put something out. It's always enjoyable to read. So, uh, so keep up the great work and we'll do this again in the future.
1: Thanks a lot, Pomp. This was super fun.